1: And most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Antiphase would be right hand forward, right hand back, left hand forward, left hand back. You get the idea. So there's a million things that you can do within the- Well, this could be fun. It should be fun. Yeah. Put the fun back in function. Exactly. In the lower extremity, super easy to do. Here's yeah. the thing about the lower extremity one of the things that messes up in people that have gait problems after a brain injury is the rhythmicity of walking. Put in earplugs one time and walk, it's almost like a shuffle beat. Very yeah. It has all that beat going on in it. And so, if you can reestablish the rhythmicity of gait, you start to reestablish stride length, step length, uh, kinematics, hip rotation, the amount of knee flexion. It's just something that's not used by clinicians very often and I'm flummoxed as to why. Get a metronome, get it on your phone, use it, and see if you can't get people to reestablish the rhythmicity of gait.
0: Hi, Deb Battistella, how are you? Hi, Beat Levine. Great and so ready to talk about bilateral training. That's
1: today's episode. Is Wow, that's good. So it's on bilateral training. And I will warn folks that um, if you try to Google bilateral training, you're going to come up with one of two things. One is a weightlifting concept that you would lift using both uppers or both lower extremities at the same time, like a a bench press would be bilateral because you're using both arms, or a squat would be bilateral. So, it's not that stuff, really, although it's more related to that than it is the military applications, which bilateral training are when two armies get together and work together in a way that they normally wouldn't to you know, maybe work on a common enemy or something like that. It's a military thing. But we're not talking about either of those things. We're talking about how it works with rehab.
0: Good. I'm glad that we're not talking about military training because I know nothing about that.
1: Yes, we would not be good at that. I don't no. think.
0: We're We're peaceniks. We're we're in rehab. Yeah, we're, exactly. We want people to heal. We're helpers. We're helpers. Look for the look for the helpers. Mister yeah. Rogers always said.
1: What's that? What did Mister Rogers say?
0: Look for the helpers. Look for the
1: helpers. Mm-hmm. I like to think of myself as a helper. I have my down days, though. <laughs> okay, all right, let's move on. So, I'm going to give you a little experiment and if you're listening to this podcast, you can do this experiment, but don't do it if you're driving because you'll soon see why you shouldn't do it when you're when you're driving. The first thing I need Deb, if you wouldn't mind doing this. Can you explain to the fine folks at home what a three jaw chuck is? It's a very OT concept. Can you tell us what a
0: three jaw chuck is? Okay, so Pete, put you on I the I believe you put me on the Let spot. Let me take way. you. Right I back don't have school. my. I don't have my little images pulled up here. So isn't it a, a three point pinch, like when you're holding a writing utensil? Exactly. Okay, thank you. Great. So it's.
1: You passed the <laughs> oh my <time>.
0: God! <laughs> so it's, I did graduate OT school.
1: You did. And so it's thumb on one side, pressed up against the index finger and the long finger. Kind of like it's really, OTs talk about it with re- writing. It's that three jaw chuck for writing with utensil. Okay, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do to show you the power of bilateral training. With your non-dominant left hand, you're right-handed, aren't you? Correct. So much about you, I don't know. Okay, right. so your right hand. So okay, we're going to do our left hand, okay. and you can do it on the tabletop or you can do it in the air. Either way, mm-hmm. sign your name as you would on a check. Um, like, so don't make it really big because the tendency with the don dominant hand is to use, make it as about as big as you would try to make it with your dominant hand. Just go ahead and just the left hand. Okay. It's kind of a disaster for me. Yeah, it's not pretty, but… Now, with the dominant hand, at the same time, in the same direction, do it with the non-dominant hand and go ahead and sign your name. Oh, my goodness. So, it turns out that when you use both hands to do exactly the same thing, your dominant side will teach in real time your non-dominant side. The trajectory will be better, the speed, the accuracy, the coordination. Everything gets better when you do it bilaterally versus unilaterally. So, that's what we're talking about. Wow. That the good side trains the bad side. Yeah. Now, if you have a stroke, what is the weak side and the strong side is very obvious But also in any kind of acquired brain injury, you're probably going to have a stronger side and a weaker side. Sometimes it's so profound that it switches the handedness of the person. It's not unusual in stroke for somebody that's right-handed. If the stroke affects the right side and that's the weak side, they learn to sign their checks with the left side. So that's where we're headed with all this.
0: I like where we're going with all this.
1: So do you have any names of anybody that like... I know we're we're working on our um our cards like our baseball cards, but for neuroscientists, do you have any names in <laughs> bilateral training that that just like we should put on our series of cards?
0: It's really like you read my mind <laughs> because you know when we were talking before this episode in preparation for this episode, you mentioned Jill. Is it Whittall? Is that how you say her last name?
1: Yeah, Jill Whittle, Yeah,
0: I think she needs to go. On a card, she and she did do this this article that I'm looking at right now. She wrote with Sandy mccomb Waller, so I don't want to leave Sandy out. So I think that uh, Sandy and Jill need to go on these cards. Hmm. They, they'd be proud. this article. They would be, and I'm sure they would be. This article is written in a way that I can understand it, and I think when research is written. And understandable language, they, they're going to have to get like higher points or however we're going to do this. I think that's very important for is, therapists and in carrying information over into the clinic.
1: It is rare that researchers know how to write. Mm-hmm. I worked with a guy, Stephen Page, you know who it is, um, who was the principal investigator on in all our studies. Well, not all the studies I was involved in, but 95% of them. And he could write. That mug could write. I mean, he would. He would write so that you could only come to one conclusion. And so many people in research, and I, I review other people's stuff for peer review. The writing's god awful. But you, what so will this article be in the show notes?
0: Yes, this article will be in the show notes. It is called "Bilateral Arm Training: Why and Who Benefit." Now, it is an older article, but I think it's still relevant. And since you mentioned. Steve, I think he needs a card too, <laughs> because Steve Steve helped me out when I was a fieldwork student. So, all right, well, well, maybe we'll have him on one episode
1: and and have him give us his insight. Yeah. Um, so, um, Jill Witall, University of Maryland Baltimore Campus, uh, has been on my radar for a very long time, and she came up with something called Bat Track, which is bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing. And I do want to discuss that as a therapeutic intervention, especially for lower-level people. But is there anything that you got out of the article that will blow my mind? (laughs) Please, please blow my mind.
0: (laughs) Well, I have a whole bunch of it highlighted here, so I think so. Um, First of all, this article talks about how rationale for using this type of training has been incompletely explained. So, their purpose is to go on and explain it and provide a theoretical justification for bilateral training. There are two important points. Bilateral training can improve unilateral paretic limb function of the upper extremity after stroke. However, they say specific training approaches need to be matched to baseline characteristics of the patient. And I think that's very important to note. And then... They speak to the importance of bilateral activities in daily life. There's pretty much only uh, one thing that people don't do with two arms, and that's opening a door. And they do talk about task analysis, which is an OT superpower. And they that's all. That's all I'm going to say.
1: What, what is task analysis? Is that like an outcome? Is that an outcome measure?
0: It's actually when... when no, it's not. It's when you analyze... <laughs> The no. steps... No, Pete, but that's a good guess. I'm sorry. I'll <laughs> sit in
1: the back in the class just throwing spitballs. All right, tell us what it is. This
0: is how I really am. And don't you feel bad for my students because I'm just... I'm so freaking direct.
1: Very, very good teachers. Just I'm
0: don't. harsh. let go. <laughs> so, um, task analysis is analyzing all of the steps required to complete an activity, whatever that activity may be. And that's one thing that we learn in OT school and OTA school. And it helps us to um, identify where there's a breakdown in activity and come up with solutions for completion, whether it's compensatory strategies, some adaptive equipment, an environmental change, or remediation within the person.
1: So is are they suggesting in the article that you have to have this task analysis breakdown of the task in order to figure out how bilateral training might help?
0: They are, they're just saying that an assessment of bilateral and unilateral functioning needs to include bilateral task analysis so that you understand what the, what the roles of each limb are doing.
1: Yeah, so you can make it sort of goal-oriented. Yes. So we do similar things in constraint-induced therapy. It's called part-whole practice, right? So you take the entire ADL, which is an activity of daily living, an entire movement, you break it down to its component parts joint by joint. You practice the component parts, then you you put it together for the entire ADL. And in that way, you never overwhelm the person because they can always move a little bit. Mm -hmm. But constraint-induced therapy does And constrained use therapy is where they constrain the stronger side, forcing you to the weaker side. But obviously, if you constrain the, the stronger side and somebody has no movement on the weaker side, that's just mean. That is, is just cr- mean. That is just horrible. And nobody would do that. And so, we wouldn't do that. And so, um, you have to have some uh, movement to
0: begin with. So, I think we should explain what that movement looks like so people can understand what's required to participate in constraint-induced therapy? Well, I don't want to go into
1: it too much because I think it's a whole episode,
0: but I'll tell you. I know. Let's
1: just cut to the chase. Thank you. Uh, So, constraint-induced therapy can be done in the upper and lower extremity. I'll leave the lower extremity off. It's much less research in the lower extremity, but in the upper extremity, it's called the 10-10-10 rule. 10 degrees at the wrist, they have to show you the ability to actively do 10 degrees. And in case you're wondering what 10 degrees is, it's not very much. Is
0: it, just, is it just wrist extension or flexion? No, so there's and. other stuff.
1: Okay. So it's three joints. So it, it's 10 degrees at the wrist, 10 degrees at the thumb in any movement, and 10 degrees at two additional fingers. It could be any two fingers, but you know, who's going to, the way we measure this stuff is with goniometric measurements. It's like this fancy protractor that therapists hate and they never can get it right. And it's, you know, we don't use that stuff in research anyway. Um, But here's a better way to do it. University of Oregon came up with this one and it was a great one. Can you pick up and release a washcloth with any kind of prehension? That is, I don't care if you pick it up with your pinky in the palm three times, pick it up. Drop it on the table, pick it up, drop it on the table, pick it up, drop it on the table three times in one minute. Whether you use the 10 10 10 rule or that pick it up and drop it, it's got to be three times in one minute because we've all seen people that have brain injury, they do something, you tell them to do something and they attempt to do it and they nail it. Yeah. And then you ask them to do it again, they can't even get their hand open. So yeah. you got it, it's got to be three times in one minute. That's kind of like the rule there. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, but concerning deuce therapy, I think you would agree that kind of movement is very high level. It's high level, you know, it's the hand, a lot of joints. Yeah. So, what bilateral training can help with is getting them up to that high level. Last time we talked about mirror therapy, mirror therapy can be done before they can even move. Bilateral training, electrical stimulation is another one that can be used to get them just enough movement for them to get into the Holy Grail, which really is some sort of repetitive practice, force use, constraint induced kind of thing. So bilateral arm training can be done in two ways, either in phase. So if you were to punch both your arms forward and back at the same time, uh, what do you, like rowing a boat? Is that how you row a boat? I don't even know. Yes. yes. Both fold, Both back. Yeah. That's in phase movement. Now imagine if you punch first with your right and then your left. That's anti phase movement. And bilateral arm training will work uh, in either of those, either in phase or anti phase. You don't have to worry about whatever works for you. Okay. Now, this is the thing about the lower extremity, though. The lower extremity has baked into it a lot of bleeding edge concepts of neuroscience as it relates to recovery. And one of them is that walking is inherently bilateral, it's also repetitive and it's challenging and it's meaningful and it's cardiovascular and it brings BDNF into the brain. So it's a bunch of good stuff. Um, But what Jill Weddell added to bilateral arm training was a rhythm. And she had this machine that used to sit on the table top and she would have them do either in phase movement where they would go like rowing a boat up and back. And they, the weaker side would do whatever it could do. It couldn't do as much, but it would do whatever it could do. And the stronger side would do everything that it could do. It would do as much as it could. So the, the, the goal of each arm was slightly different or a lot different. One would do a big movement of, you know, excursion of two feet and the other one would do two inches, but that's okay. That's okay. And then she would add a rhythm to it. So with each of the movements of the arm – either in-phase or anti-phase, they would hit a target.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. For creating this rhythm, is a metronome better, or can you use music with a specific beat? That's a great question,
1: and it's one I got in a lot of my classes, and it it all came down to this is not about speed, right? Right. Right. I mean, I suppose you could make it about speed, but that's not what it's about. It's about hitting on the beat. So with music, it'd be really hard to figure out what music would fit to the beat for the patient sitting in front of you. Um, If you're a survivor, you're doing it this at home. Ask your doctor first. But you know, finding the right music might be kind of difficult. In the lower extremity, um, you definitely, I would strongly suggest it be a metronome, but that but that could be different too. It could be, you know, beat it by Michael Jackson, and that could be the perfect set of beats. It's just easier with a metronome. And there's a ton of apps. If you're a therapist, I would suggest that you get a metronome app, metronome app on your phone. It is highly compelling for both the lower extremity and the upper extremity. Now, Jill Whittall eventually did put something to market. She calls it the tailwind. Okay. I got one of them sitting in my basement because here's how you get free stuff. Are you ready to learn how to get free stuff? Here you go. Okay. Here's what you do. First of all, you got to do talks. Now, you work at a university. I'm sure you could do it that way. But if you're a clinician out there in the field, you can always say, hi, I really read about your thing and I think it's really good. And I really wish I had one. And I have a really big rehab department and they would all, you know, we have a huge budget and we would really like, I would like to show your thing, but I don't have one. Can you send me some PowerPoint slides so I can show some really boring PowerPoint slides about your great thing that I wish I had? And boom, it shows up the next week. Wow. This thing, she sent me this thing, the tailwind, she calls it. And basically it's the same thing. It's for the upper extremity. It has a counter that counts the number of repetitions. So you know, if we're trying to vector in, you know, thousands of repetitions, or at least hundreds per session, this is a good way to vector that in. And uh, it has this breastplate, um, and w- I guess we'll put a, a link for it in the in the show notes. Yeah. But it has this breastplate, so it keeps them equal distance from the machine. She called it the Tailwind. I didn't like the name. She didn't ask me. I like bat track it was bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing so in phase anti-phase it will help them get enough movement to then work on repetitive practice and um and there's a couple other rules, but is anything coming to mind that you wanted to add to this?
0: No, I just actually pulled up a, I Google searched and I see an image of it. And um, well, I guess I have some questions. Yeah. So what if a person doesn't have enough grasp to hold on to it? You That's know an how f-
1: excellent question.
0: I know what, I know what we've done when yeah, people so can't what would hold you
1: on. Well, thank you. You go. What do you, What would you do?
0: Well, we've ace wrapped hands to things. So is, is that pretty much what you would do or do you have another strategy?
1: No, I think ACE is perfect.
0: <laughs> yeah, just ACE wrap the, the hand on there nice and stable. Mm-hmm. I would only do that if I knew a shoulder was stable as well. And I, I usually stay, stay close to the person initially until we, we know that this is a solid Strategy
1: and why would you want to make sure that the shoulder was stable? You are you afraid they're gonna like hurt that the bad side or the the weak side shoulder?
0: Well, just you know, if somebody has a subluxation, I just like to see how people are moving. I don't want to create pain or cause further injury or cause any injury. Right, that's just that's my style.
1: You don't like to cause pain, and you don't want to do military stuff. No, you're just one of those caring people. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Empathy, it's it's an occupational hazard with you, occupational therapists.
0: <laughs> it can be.
1: You know what PT stands for? Pain and torture.
0: Mm, I always say peer torture. Peer torture.
1: Peer torture. <laughs> Yikes. Wait, <laughs> did you say that to your peers over there on the
0: <laughs> rehab side, on the PT side? You know, if it needs to be said. I will say it. (laughs) Ouch.
1: Yeah. You know, I've always looked at OTs as sort of frustrated artists and PTs as frustrated athletes. I don't know if that's accurate Mm. at all, but that's I'm sticking to it. (laughs) So, but you bring up a good point, like the UBE. So a UBE is an like an upper body ergometer. Is that what it stands for? I think so. Yes. Yeah. So it's like a bicycle that you do with your hands. Mm -hmm. Those movements are chained. They're chained. Yes. So, um, that's not what this should be. Okay. The UBE won't help with this. Remember when you wrote your name and Mm -hmm. your dominant side helped your non-dominant side? Yeah. Those were unchained movements. You didn't have a pencil with one dragging the other. They were able to move independently. It's only through the independent movement of both sides that bilateral training works. So, make sure it's unchained. Okay. Because I think… That's what I thought of when you thought you've got to protect the shoulder. Yeah, you're right. On a UBE, if you tie it up using an ace bandage to the, the cycle, then their shoulder is going to be forced through that mm-hmm. full cycle. Whereas with Bat-Track, you only ask the affected side to do what it can, even if okay. it's an excursion of a couple of inches, because okay. you know what you're going for, like, that week or the next week, three inches, and then okay. you're going for eight inches, and then you're chipping away at the present active ranges of motion, and then you know hopefully you can get enough non-functional movement to start to work on functional things.
0: Yes. Okay. So we have to pause here. So UBE, I've seen, um, I've seen people do it with a therapy bar various items. And I want to specifically state the UBE, we should really not be using those. The American Occupational Therapy Association participates in the Choosing Wisely campaign, and they recommend not using certain tools because we are supposed to be occupation-based as a discipline. And the arm bike is really not it's not a functional item it's It's very much exercise. I know some people value it and they like to use it, but it, it should not be a first choice mm-hmm. in the clinic
1: and that's sort of irrespective of the shoulder problems we're talking about. Mm-hmm. yeah, um so choosing wisely, can you put a can we have that as a show notes uh, link? Yes, so I know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs>
0: Yes. Yeah, so
1: it sounds cool and it sounds right. It's wouldn't.
0: really cool. It's all about um good conversation with you and your healthcare provider so that we're not we're not doing things that shouldn't be done and we're not we're not engaging our clients in interventions that are not meaningful to them.
1: So let me ask you about another one. Um okay. so with somebody who has a pathological shoulder, how do you feel about pulleys? No. The answer is no.
0: <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> are you sure about that? Because you didn't seem too sure.
1: The answer is no. Why is the answer no? What the do you, answer police is no. allow you to range things? What's the what's the problem?
0: Oh, I think you can do a lot of damage with pulleys. If people if people are lacking sensation in a a limb, they're not going to feel if they're uh pulling too far if you know some of those overhead pulleys they're just not stable they're flopping all over the place the arm is not moving in alignment or in a plane of motion that it should be moving in no
1: so no is the answer and that's something that you know, it, I don't see it from therapists, but I do see it from stroke survivors. I'm in um, a bunch of Facebook stroke survivor groups, mm-hmm. and um, and it's fascinating what they talk about, but they'll talk about pulleys as if, you know, yeah, it's okay to do. It. It's not okay to do. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is what you're talking about. Sometimes they're insensate on that yeah. side, and they'll they'll ace bandage their hand on and yank at that shoulder mm-hmm. that's already subluxed, and it's just not a good thing at, at all, Um I want to tell you a quick story. Okay. Um, We did a study for, do you know what a new step is?
0: Yes. I am a firm believer in the new step.
1: So the new step is that bilateral aspect. So the arms are working reciprocal, uh, equal and opposite, and the legs at the same time are working equal and opposite. So it's kind of like a precursor to ambulation or to bicycling or something like that. Okay. Um, So we did a study and in the During the lean years in our lab, when, when there wasn't a lot of money coming in and we still had to pay the bills, University of Cincinnati supported us. Um, it had to do with a backlog during the previous administration. When Obama got into, into uh, office, all of a sudden there was a flood of money and everything went great. NIH grants were, were funded. Um, but in the lean years, we cobbled together, and this is, again, Steve Page that did this these independent companies that would come in and ask us to do studies. And one of them was NewStep. And we did the New step and we measured, I think, gait speed and some kinematic stuff just to see if they were getting better using this NewStep. And one of the things that I, I think that NewStep wasn't super happy about was the fact that we had a lot of people complain about back pain. Because when one arm went, when the stronger side went forward, there was rotation of the trunk. But Because the weaker side also had to rotate, but their elbow was constantly flexed, they had to hyper-rotate, I don't know if that's a word, but they had to more rotate their trunk, and they said they had back pain. So, yeah, I don't think they were really happy with us, and I don't know what they ever did with that study. But one thing that came out of that study was something that you kind of just mentioned. Before that, they didn't have something that was dedicated to holding the hand on that bar, so with bat track, there's a bar, um, and we'll we'll tell you how to do bat track without the fancy machinery. But um, you have a bar, and they created this flower thing that had these petals that velcroed over the hand, and and put it on there. And I think there's similar kinds of things on Amazon. So oh, cool. Yeah, but again, those are chained movements. We want unchained movements.
0: Unchained movements.
1: Unchained. It's got to allow the the stronger side to teach the weaker side in real time. Now, how might you do this at home after you've talked to your OT and your PT and gone to your doctor, went back to your OT and said, is this okay for me to do? Is this okay for my shoulder? So the way I have it um, in my book where my lovely wife Isla is the hemipretic person, I have a tabletop in front of them and then um, masking tape at two different levels of excursion. So let's say the right arm is the strong arm. Yeah, that picture. And maybe we can like link to that picture or something. The right arm does the excursion that it can, that's on the first click, and then the left arm does much less movement. So you get this click right arm forward, click left arm forward, click right arm forward, click left arm forward, and they're trying to hit on the B. Or they do both arms forward, But the the distance traveled is as much as the affected side can do, but the strong side does as much as it can, but you're still doing it. Those are two together.
0: Okay. So I'm looking at the picture here and I just want to clarify. It looks like the masking tape is set for the same distance.
1: Oh, wow. Well, then I just blew my point. Okay. Oh, no, there is it. Is that the picture?
0: It is.
1: Oh, okay, great. So I did it wrong. So okay. the next edition of my book, which is coming soon, I'm gonna correct that or at least add another picture where it's scattered. the The okay. affected side should only be asked to do what it can. It can't be asked to do as much as the the, uh, yeah. the good side the the strong side
0: so allowing the person to hit the target, then it's like a reward. Yeah, maybe. Well, there's a research study for Are you Pete? suggesting we put candy there. And whatever they, you they
1: know, whatever
0: the enticement is, sure shot
1: like of tequila.
0: Well, if you can reach that thing, you get you the tequila. <laughs> that
1: that is contraindicated. Do not do that. Now, let me ask you this: Let's say you were to do a drum circle with patients. Oh
0: yeah, yeah right, yeah. Drummer? Oh, let's go crazy with this. This is. I been- have a son who I have a son who's a drummer. Really. Was he in a band? He was. He was. And now he's grown up now. He doesn't have a family, but he has grown up. Yes, well, is. he's growing up.
1: <laughs> and uh oh, okay.
0: I love you, Sam. Hey Sam. How's
1: it <laughs> going? Yes, you're you're we're all in the process of growing up, Sam. Yeah, Don't yeah. let mom, you know, harangue <laughs> too much here. So let's say we would do a drum circle. What would bilateral arm training that was equal and at the same time look like on the drum in front of you? Equal at
0: the same time, you would be. Right.
1: Both hands coming down at once. I get whole classes to do this and in hotel ballrooms and we just drive everybody out of the hotel. Okay. So both hands coming down at the same time. What if you wanted to do, so that's in phase movement, both going at the same time. What about anti-phase? What do you think that would look like on your drum?
0: Well, wouldn't that be the same as the towel? Like,
1: Right. So what, show me on your drum. You're Sam's mom. Come on. You got to be able to drum a little bit. Yeah. Left, right, left, right, left, right. Okay. So that's bilateral training. If you wanted to do abduction, adduction at the shoulder, so that's where you go away from the body and towards the body, yeah. you could do it either anti-phase. right hand out, left hand out. Right hand in, left hand in, right hand out, left hand out, right hand in, right hand in. Or you could do shoulder flexion. Um, oh, by the way, that was antiphase. If you wanted to do it in phase with shoulder abduction, it would be both hands out, both hands in, both hands out, both. You do it to a rhythm. If you want to do shoulder flexion, if you want to do in phase, both hands forward, both hands back, both hands forward, both hands back. Antiphase would be right hand forward, right hand back, left hand forward, left hand back. You get the idea. So, there's a million things that you can do within the… Well, this could be fun. It should be fun. Yeah. Yeah, put the fun back in function. Exactly. Right. Um, In the lower extremity, super easy to do. Here's the thing about the lower extremity. One of the things that messes up in people that have gait problems after a brain injury is the rhythmicity of walking. Like you don't Mm -hmm. think about it. Well, you probably do, but most people don't think about it. Put in earplugs one time and walk. You'll hear this. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a shuffle beat. Sam would know what a shuffle beat is. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, it has all that beat going on in it. And so if you can read. If you can reestablish the rhythmicity of gait, you start to reestablish stride length, step length, uh, kinematics, hip rotation, the amount of knee flexion. It's just something that's not used by clinicians very often, and I'm flummoxed as to why it should be used. Get a metronome, get it on your phone, use it, and see if you can't get people to reestablish the rhythmicity of gait.
0: I'm so glad you just said that because I was sitting here biting my tongue I've never seen this used in the clinic.
1: We're going to change that.
0: <laughs> I was. We're starting a movement. Was that you, wasn't
1: that your thing in the initial episode? We are going mm-hmm. to be agents of change. I'm like, secret it agents is. of change? And do I, I just- don't
0: think it's a secret anymore. <laughs> yeah.
1: So metronomes is just a great tool. And there's some really good ones. And I'll try to flip through my phone. Oh, I know the name of mine. It was loud. Loud
0: metronome. That's what it's called. Oh, like just from the LSVT big therapy or just a loud metronome? It was just the loudest of all of them. And I had to have loud because
1: because I do play drums and sometimes you need a metronome. But but because you know this, gyms can be really loud places. And if the person can't hear it, it's probably good if the clinician hears it. Mm -hmm. So it should be loud enough for you both to hear it, but you can hold it up near your ear and and have them do it that way.
0: Yeah. Well, right now it's COVID and people are treating in rooms. So perfect. Perfect opportunity for some variety in your PT and OT interventions.
1: Absolutely. Get yourself a metronome. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a company called Interactive Metronome. Have you heard of them? No. Yeah. So they... they try to make this stuff expensive, oh. and it—it's just the metronome stuff, and so it's a—it's a cool machine. We tried it in the upper extremity, and I think we got halfway decent outcomes. They used it in the lower extremity, and you, you like, you have these two things on your hand and you clap together. It tells you whether you're on the beat ahead of the beat or behind the beat. So as a drummer, I was like fascinated by this That's thing. Cool. <laughs> that I was actually pretty on the beat. Unlike most of my bandmates who used to say, I used to rush all the time. It turns out they're wrong and I have the data to prove it, but yeah. <laughs> so you can get really expensive with this stuff, but you know, I wouldn't suggest it the the tailwind, you know, it's a great machine if you have it for your clinic, for the bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing, um, but I, last time I looked, it's twelve hundred bucks or something like that.
0: So, so in terms of these trading cards, if somebody has an expensive piece of equipment, does that mean they lose point value?
1: Absolutely not. Okay, good. Because because well, okay, I I don't know Jill at all, but I like her, <laughs> and and I think that she should be given credit for this. Great. Oh yeah. Adjunctive thing that will help people prior to being functional do something for their recovery.
0: Absolutely, I'm glad that you said that. When you're doing these movements, do you ever cross midline in this game? If you're making it a game, or is that going to undo an effect? I'll
1: defer to what you probably already know. Of course, you can. Okay. Um, but I'll also defer to the great Joe Wittall, who the. You can set up, I think you can set up the tailwind where at least they come together. They don't cross midline because then you would have one on top of the other Mm -hmm. because they're long bars, Um, but you then you could switch them out. But no, there's no rules that say that you can't cross over.
0: Okay, because crossing midline is problematic for some people following stroke. Imagine
1: if they can do a punching movement with the affected side, the weaker side, but it only comes close to their body across their body. Mm-hmm. Well, then, as long as you match it with the stronger side, then you would have both sides doing the same thing, and they'd be both crossing midline.
0: Oh, this is so beautiful. It's beautiful. Falling in love with therapy all over again. Oh I know. Aww. So So, you know, I have to say, when I was talking to people about this podcast before it was actually a thing, some of my some of these people that I were speaking with got very excited about the research. So, I want to talk a little bit about what this article says.
1: Please, please, please do. Thank you. Thank you.
0: So, she talks about a functional justification for bilateral arm training. And the primary reason to do this is that much of what we do every day involves using both of our hands and arms um and she gives very good examples she talks about your basic adls and then she gets into iadls those instrumental activities of daily living such as keyboarding shopping cooking you know things that are s- leisure activities for some people and if we can help people get back to leisure activities i think that can that's another motivation for them um and then she says except for very mildly affected individuals they argue that retraining unilateral manipulative skills should not be the only or even the primary focus particularly for people who have a stroke that affects the non-dominant hand you know i think we really need to start listening to what the research says and and since the research is it's so logical You know, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the fact that this isn't being done in the clinic, really, I just hope this calls, speaks to somebody's heart about it. Um, Unilateral training may not lead to better bilateral function because the arms need to be coordinated. So that's a big deal right there. And then she talks about motor control justification. I can tell you have something to say. I I don't. I'm fascinating. And, And-
1: I've been in clinical research for 20 years, and I didn't know what ID, I, ADL meant. So now I know. Okay.
0: Oh, yeah. I always tell. P-
1: you keep teaching. Oh, I'm okay. going to keep learning. Go.
0: Okay. Yeah. So those instrumental ADLs, they're, they are activities of daily living that require higher level cognitive function. So beyond just rote things that we do over the course of our life. In terms of the motor control justification for bilateral arm training, they say that um, the most common type of bilateral skills are those classed as bilateral complementary where the two arms cooperate to complete a task with each arm having a separate function that requires quite different but essentially simultaneous temporal, spatial, and force parameters. This is I mean, this is the stuff that we don't think about once we graduate. Well, there there was a lot of big words. There were. And
1: I I have trouble with big words. So can you break that down? Give me an example of something that you would do bilaterally where one extremity is doing one thing, but the other extremity is working with that extremity, but doing something completely different.
0: Well, this is a very simple one, and it's one that they use in the article, but where one arm or hand is holding a jar and the other one is unscrewing the lid. Tying shoes—that's another one. Mm, um, one. Yeah.
1: Buttoning buttons is that buttoning one? buttons?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah kind Two of. different functions. If you're holding one side of a shirt, and then pushing the button through with the other hand, and then some other big words that were in there were the um, the different parameters: so temporal, spatial, and force parameters.
1: Oh, so it's not just that they're doing asymmetric stuff, but they're doing it with different timing. Is that right? Did I get well, that
0: right? all of these things are occurring simultaneously. The timing, the space, the force. So, all of these factors are at play and they happen at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, what do you think the clinical, I'm wondering what the clinical implications are for all of that. So, yeah.
0: I have a thought. Like one of the things that we do tend to do for people who've had stroke with a an affected limb as a goal is just to get that affected arm to be able to stabilize an object. So stabilize bread while you're spreading peanut butter on it. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. What are you thinking about? Hmm. I'm
1: thinking that the best way to learn how to button buttons is to button buttons, but if you can't button buttons, would there be something like bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing, something that Jill Whittle would agree to, that would be a precursor to buttoning buttons? I guess that's kind of like what I'm thinking of. And maybe that's where your part whole practice thing comes in where um, let's see, buttoning button would involve, grasp and release by one and then grasp and release by another I wonder if there's some way that
0: you could fake
1: it until you make it so anyway well
0: what you I was just watching you so I can see Pete right now and he was simulating buttons unbuttoning buttons it looked like eensy weensy spider oh so and who doesn't (laughs) love that (laughs) I know who wasn't driven
1: crazy (laughs) by that song (sighs) (sighs) yeah Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's very good. So it would be like index finger. How does the itsy bitsy spider go? Oh, so it, does it go like that? One. Yeah, kind of like. Yeah. And that has that same thing. And you can decide oh. how much. We're, we're like forming snowballs. Yeah. Uh, palm down on one side, then palm down on the other side, and they're kind of cupping together. It'd be that kind of movement. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the the possibilities are endless. They are. This is good stuff.
0: It is good stuff.
1: So what do you think? Have we beaten this to death or should we?
0: Well, I don't know. It would be nice to have some people to ask now. Do you feel like you understand it sufficiently and are you excited enough about it that you're willing to implement it in the clinic?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I do in my talks, and I'll, I'll throw it out there for anybody if you want something answered, we are willing to answer it. Yeah. Uh, And to the point where I will look at the research to come up with the best answer for your question. So email us early and often. um, And all that stuff is going to be in the show notes and our email address and all that stuff. And I'm sure you're going to do the sort of, anyway, we can talk about this later, but usually do a tag at the end of it. That's going to explain all that stuff. So,
0: yeah. Yeah yeah i think that's a good place to stop and we'll put this article in the show notes too so people can read it it's really it's fascinating
1: jill went all bucking for
0: a card <laughs> our neuroscience cards <laughs> she can tops. send us a picture or i'll steal one off the internet <laughs> yes,
1: we, will steal, we will steal her picture from the internet yeah. okay well thanks deb that was thanks, super Pete. fun as usual yeah, yeah and, good uh, stuff And we'll talk to you guys again.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.